Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to Babbage, The Economist's weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha and this week we're in Seattle for the world's largest general scientific gathering. The American Association for the Advancement of Science, or AAAS as it's known, brings together thousands of experts to present their work on everything from solar geoengineering to the science of beauty. And one of the big questions being debated here is how on earth to feed the world when there are almost 10 billion people living on it. Coming up, we'll find out how AI and cloud computing could transform life for farmers in even the poorest regions. And could genetic engineering provide solutions to the food crises of the future? But first, by 2050, the global population is projected to reach 9.7 billion. More people will be wealthier, they'll want to eat more, and they'll want to eat more meat. At the same time, climate change is putting pressure on land and making it harder to grow food. To chew over these issues, I'm at the CIMIC stage at the AAAS Exhibition Hall, and with me is a distinguished panel of experts. Walter Willett is the Professor of Epidemiology at Harvard University and the world's most cited nutritionist. Thank you for joining us, Walter. Good to be with you. We also have Catherine Matecki, a Professor of Food Science at Iowa State University and former Chief Scientist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Welcome, Cathy. Thanks for the invitation. Also here is Jeff Carr, Science and Technology Editor at The Economist. Thanks for being here, Jeff. Hello. So let's start with you, Walter. Today, there are more than 2 billion people who are overweight and more than 800 million people who go to bed hungry. Global population is still growing. Do you think that the planet is able to sustainably feed 10 billion people? That's a really critical question. I was able to co-chair a commission that was funded by the Wellcome Trust to look at that issue. It took us about three years of pulling together data from the agricultural world, the environmental world, the human nutrition world. At the end, we found that it was possible, but it will be a very big stretch to make that happen. What does a healthy diet look like for the planet, for that many people? The evidence does really converge that a healthy diet would be primarily plant-based, but with potentially modest amounts of animal source proteins in it. It would emphasize fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, and then perhaps a modest amount of dairy, meat, poultry. The bottom line is that diet, if everybody adopted it, could reduce mortality rates by about 20 to 25% globally. Kathy, looking ahead to this big goal, what do you think are the major hurdles we've got to overcome to get to this point of feeding that many people sustainably? There's not one single answer to that question. What we need to do are a whole set of things in agricultural production, in the way that we harvest and store food so that there is less that is lost, 
the kind of dietary changes that Walt was talking about that also include some animal food products because those are also important for some essential nutrients. And in the process of doing all of that, there are a set of agricultural technologies that we already know about that we could be putting in place that would dramatically increase agricultural yields and at the same time would go a long way towards reducing greenhouse gas emissions from agricultural production. And we'll drill down on some of the specific technologies a bit later in this conversation. Jeff, in terms of the reporting you've done on this over many years, is this a familiar story? Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, I think there's a point that's worth making at the beginning of this discussion, though, which is that although there are those 2 billion people who are overweight, and although there are those 800 million who, who are underfed, since the 1950s, the situation has improved. It's continuing to improve. It was much worse in the past. The numbers are large now because the population is much larger. And the fact that the population is much larger is actually, in part, a reflection of the success of agriculture and agricultural science, that we've been able to increase production faster than the human population has grown. So I don't think we should be panicking about this. History suggests uh, that we can innovate our way out of this as long as we're sensible about it. The environmental questions are, are different ones. Walter? It's definitely true that production of calories is adequate if we really distribute it. But the type of food that we're producing is a serious issue. And for some parts of the world, such as uh, India and other parts of Asia, where people are having really poor diets because the vast amount of their calories are coming from a, a starchy stable, there it actually is probably going to take more resources, more inputs, if we want those people to be able to have a healthy diet. And so, Kathy, uh, in terms of new technologies then that uh, can help to increase yields and also make sure that things are more environmentally friendly, give us a bit of a tour of the kinds of things that are coming. Well, first of all, I think we need to start from the understanding that there is a limited amount of farmable land around the world, and, and most of that is already in production. So the approach that we need to take is to produce more food per area of land. Genetic engineering, DNA editing approaches, not only to produce higher yields, but to do it by making the plants more efficient. More crop per drop is the, is the phrase that's used. Change the architecture of the plant so that there is more surface area that's available to absorb the sun and through photosynthesis produce more crop. There's one area where I think a lot more research and, and effort needs to be put in, which is almost all of the work that's being done now is being done on, on uh, cash crops that are widely traded around the world for obvious reasons because that's where the money is. But quite a lot of people rely on subsistence crops which are different from those crops and that's particularly true in Africa where, it, where quite a lot of the people who are uh, undernourished live. One thing which would make, in my view, a, a big difference is if a tenth of the effort that was put into improving things like maize and wheat was put into improving things like cassava um, and you know, other crops which in the West we haven't even heard of, which are still very important to African farmers. If you could increase the yields and the nutrient value of these crops, it would make a, a, a huge difference to human, human happiness. And I might also note that there is work that's being done 
for what are called these orphan crops. Yeah, there is, yes, yes. To map their genomes, to identify which are the genes that are within these orphan crops, ones that are very important to convey these different desirable traits. So there is some attention, mm. but you're absolutely right, Jeff. There's not enough. There's not enough. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Walter, um, another technology that uh, is sort of coming into the fore now is using plant material to create things like fake meats. Do you think that kind of thing is going to encourage the behavioral change Mm -hmm. that you want to see? Well, I think it is very useful to have as many options as possible, uh, including some of these ultra high-tech meat substitutes and cultured meat is coming along not too far away. That's the Uh, idea of growing meat from stem cells, essentially. Right, exactly. Different people are at different stages of change, and some people have to have something that looks and feels like their regular hamburger. So far, these alternative meat products from a health standpoint are probably not much of a gain at all. The fact that they're really trying to imitate something that's not so healthy ends up with a product that on that front is probably not much different than the original product, but from an environmental standpoint, there are some substantial advantages. And I'd like to reinforce the point that changing diet, as we've been talking about, to include more plant products is one of the important things that needs to be done. But that actually this combination of changing diets with also the incorporation of a suite of different agricultural production technologies can mean that we can have a long-term sustainable food production system, but the dietary changes may not need to be as extreme, meaning that not everybody in the world has to be eating that diet every day. And with the introduction of these other technologies, we can also be sequestering carbon and having a much more long-term sustainable ecosystem in which agricultural production systems will be having a positive role. There's something we haven't mentioned yet. A lot of animal proteins fish, but with fish, even the stuff that's farmed is pretty similar to to the wild-type animals, um, which is not true of any other animal that's, that's consumed as meat. What's the potential for improving fish, farming fish, and increasing the fraction of animal protein that's fish, because you know, fish is quite a healthy protein. Um, it may not be healthy to the planet, depending on how you farm it, but it's healthy to the individual. And also, actually, Walter, that's a good question for you. I mean, if we can eat more fish, that's probably good, but what about other alternative proteins? Insects, for example. It's good to be expanding the possibilities. Clearly, we need as many alternatives mm. as, we, as we can, and different people, different cultures will find some of them more attractive. But I quite agree with a point about the role of fish in, in diets. Uh, they can play a very healthy uh, and sometimes unique role for providing omega-3 fatty acids, for example. Now, we can't continue to overfish, so inevitably aquaculture is going to have to fill a big gap. And that's an area where I think we really do need to make a research investment to do it in the smartest way, the best way. Potentially, this is very attractive and better than many other forms of agriculture, partly because fish and other seafood are cold-blooded. The conversion of feed to edible food is very efficient compared to virtually other, any other kind of animal, maybe except insects. Catherine, let's take a step back and look at what's actually on our plates and think about how that food is produced. Are we farming the right foods and are they sustainable for the next 50, 100 years? The question needs to be taken at a country by country level, I think. Look at the situation here in the United States where we have a very large agricultural system. We are producing quantities 
that are in many ways far greater than our population consumes, and we are exporting considerable amounts of grain products and, and meat products. At the same time, we're not using that land to produce fruits and vegetables, and we have been increasingly importing those. So the question also is, you know, for countries that have different agricultural ecosystems, what can they produce to meet the nutritional needs of their population, and what do they also need to export or import or trade to obtain a, a rounded, balanced diet for the country? Yeah, that is really the story of our family farm in Michigan, that unfortunately it's been just merged with all the other farms around, and it's basically all corn and soy, sometimes alternating. And if you look at the whole, all the grain produced and consumed in the United States, only about 10% is actually eaten by humans. About 45% is fed to animals, about 35% goes to ethanol conversion. A good bit of it goes to manufacturing, high fructose corn syrup and other products like that. But only 5% of our cultivated land goes for producing fruits, vegetables, nuts, uh, the kinds of things that are really health promoting. But that farmer who's planting that corn and soy really has very little choice if he wants to survive. The economics of the situation are driving it. So we really do need to change the mix of incentives to help make individual decisions for consumers and for farmers promoting healthy, sustainable foods. Obviously, farmers respond to economic incentives, like all the rest of us. Fruit and vegetables are high-value stuff. Corn is not. So how have we ended up in a situation where uh, these very large prairie farms are producing monoculture that is a low-value crop? How has that come about? You can trace it back to a set of decisions that were made in the 1960s and the 1970s that U.S. agricultural policy should be to produce as much as possible the result has been actually a, a highly productive agriculture, hmm. but of a limited number of crops. We really do need the economists to help us find our way out of this one, because yes. this, it does boil down to the economics yeah. of what makes sense for a farmer to yes. plant if he's going to survive. We need to get this back in balance, but obviously the production needs to be balanced with demand too, yeah. so we have to work on that side simultaneously. So just to finish this, this conversation then, let me ask you each in turn. You've outlined the problems of this current system. You all seem relatively optimistic that we're going to get to the point where we can feed these people and it can be done healthily. So what needs to change and who's responsible for that change? Walter? This is a problem that really requires everyone's participation, both on the production side and on the consumption side. For example, we work a lot with food services and chefs to make healthy foods more desirable, uh, aspirational. But it also needs to happen uh, on the production side as well. We need it in healthcare systems, at work sites, in the media, in virtually every facet of our life, local levels and national levels. So it, it, the problem is huge and it's going to take the efforts of everyone. Kathy? From a policy perspective, governments need to have a food systems lens, not just an agricultural production lens, reflective of the national state. What are the kinds of ecosystems they have for food production? What are the strategies that have to be used in order to move those systems towards a more health-promoting and ecologically sound and sustainable food production system? Jeff, last word to you. Who's responsible? Being a good economist journalist, I would say, on the whole, getting to zero hunger is something that the market can do. 
famine has pretty much vanished from the face of the earth other than in war zones. There are many reasons for that. One of them is the better technology and another one is um, the development of international trade in commodities. If we're talking about feeding everybody, giving them enough calories, giving them enough micronutrients, the invisible hand with a little bit of guidance can do it. What I've always found ironic is one way of looking at the overconsumption problem is it's the alliance of two of the most powerful forces in history, which are capitalism and evolution by natural selection. We have been selected as individuals to prefer foodstuffs which are not necessarily good for us in large quantities. In my view, we have an irony that you know, capitalism has delivered good nutrition to a large fraction of the planet's population. And if allowed to do so and steered in the right direction, I think it can deliver that to the rest, even if there are 10 billion of us. But it then carries on delivering and carries on delivering. That ceases to be a, a problem of undernutrition and becomes a problem of overnutrition. I don't know how to deal with that, because that gets into areas of uh, personal choice, which are philosophically complex. We'll leave that conversation there. Thank you to Walter Willett, Catherine Motecki, and Jeff Carr. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Changing the world's behavior when it comes to food will obviously be an enormous challenge. But what about taking existing foods and giving them an upgrade? Genetically engineering crops, for example, to make them more productive, more resilient to a changing climate, even more nutritious. To find out how this might work, I tracked down someone who knows more about this than most. You can take a gene from almost any species and put it into a plant. You can use a naturally occurring soil bacterium that can transfer the DNA into the plant, or you can bombard the gene into a plant. Pam Ronalds runs the Ronald Laboratory for Crop Genetics Innovation and Scientific Literacy at the University of California, Davis. Genetic engineering has been going on for a long time because this naturally occurring bacterium has been introducing DNA into plants for a millennium. So there's examples of gene transfer through plants that happens randomly. But also, humans have been altering genes for 10,000 years. At that point, farmers were picking out the wheat plant that produced a little bit better than the others. They would harvest the seed and replant it. So that was a type of domestication. But of course, as the years progressed, we learned a lot more about genetics, the discovery of Mendel, of the important aspects of inheritance allowed really an explosion of breeding technology so that today uh, virtually everything we eat has been genetically altered using some manner of human interference. Okay, and you focus on rice. Again, yes. tell us why rice. Rice is a staple food for more than half the world's population. If we can make some small difference to the stress tolerance or disease resistance, we can benefit millions of farmers. So give me an example of a couple of the genetic modifications you've made to rice and how, how they work. We discovered a gene 
that can help rice plants survive flooding. So when rice plants are completely submerged for more than three days, most rice varieties will die. So they grow well in standing water, but they do not like to be completely submerged. My colleagues and I were able to isolate a gene and develop varieties that can survive up to two weeks of flooding. And this is very important because after the flood subsides, the plants will keep on growing. So farmers in India and Bangladesh have reaped 60% yield advantage planting this rice. So with the help of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, about 6 million farmers have been growing sub-1 rice. Your lab is called the Ronald Laboratory for Crop Genetics, which we've talked about and scientific literacy. Is the fact that your lab has scientific literacy in its title a response to the fact that there's still some mistrust out there in the public about what genetic engineering can do to plants and the safety and the other sort of aspects of it? Yes, certainly. I think as scientists, you know, we can get very excited about a particular project. As agricultural scientists, you know, we're really engaged with farmers. We talk to farmers about their challenges. And, you know, I think for a long time we thought, oh my goodness, if you can eliminate the use of chemical insecticide sprays, that's a win-win and everybody will uh, embrace it. Well, that was a little bit naive because the farmers embrace it, the scientists embrace it, but there's a lot of disinformation and misinformation among consumers. And so can we engage the public in getting them excited about science to see if we can help advance sustainable agriculture? Let's look to the positive sides of this technology then. What are the kinds of things that get you excited about what's coming down the track when it comes to being able to modify the genes of plants? Well, I'm very excited about a project one of my colleagues spoke about today, which is BT eggplant. So BT is a pesticide that is sprayed by organic farmers and it's derived from a bacteria and it's been used for about 50 years. It's non-toxic to uh, most insects, humans, fish, but it's specific for pests that infect many plants, such as eggplant. So what geneticists did is they took the gene from the bacteria, they engineered it directly into the eggplant. He reported today that 32,000 farmers in Bangladesh are planting BT eggplant, and they've massively reduced their insecticide sprays, and they're able to reap a better income. Is it fair, would you say, to say that this kind of technology then is critical if we're going to try and improve agricultural systems around the world, food systems to meet the demands of feeding 10 billion people by the middle of the century? We really need all tools on the table. How can we use the native insect flora better? How can we reduce water loss? And how can we use land and water more efficiently? So these are all really important aspects. But also what's important is to think about the seed that's planted in that ecological system. So if we can plant an eggplant that we don't have to spray chemical insecticides, then that's useful for the humans in the system because they're not going to get sick. And also it's useful for insects in the system that it's not just a broad spectrum spray. We don't want to take any of these tools off the table just because sort of this vague fear and mistrust of new technologies. When those technologies can benefit sustainable agriculture and help the very poorest people in the world, there's no reason not to use those technologies. Pam Ronald, thank you very much. Thank you. 
The answer to feeding tomorrow's world lies not only in what is being farmed, but how it's being farmed. There's a clear need to produce more, more efficiently and with less. So what if farmers could harvest more data about their farms to enable them to get more from their fields? Ranveer Chandra is the chief scientist of Microsoft Azure Global, where he started the FarmBeats project. And Chandra Krintz leads the Smart Farm Initiative at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where she's a professor of computer science. I asked Ranveer about how data is driving a new age in precision agriculture. If you could get large amounts of data from the farm, you know what your farm looks like, you could then take care of each plant better. Right now, farmers, when they apply inputs like water, they plant seeds, it's mostly based on guesswork. With precision farming, they could apply water where it is needed, when it is needed, how much is needed. Same with fertilizers, same with chemicals. And all of this will help a farmer be more productive. They can grow plants better. It will help them save costs. It's also better for the environment because you're not wasting water, you're not wasting pesticide. So that's one of the techniques that data-driven agriculture will enable. And Chandra, just give us a sense of how much computer science and computing has already impacted agriculture. Oh, it's tremendous. And it's really been driven by advances in completely different areas, like cloud computing or e-commerce or entertainment. All of the sort of the background technology that has been evolving over the last 10 to 15 years can be tailored and brought to bear on precision agriculture to really jumpstart it, to really leap us into the future, which has to happen given the growing population and how many people we have to feed in a very very short amount of time. Uh, Ranveer, of all of the buzzwords we hear about the future of computing and uh, technology, you know, artificial intelligence, the internet of things, which ones of these are going to be most useful for farmers? I think all of them are going to affect agriculture. All of them are going to benefit. The thing is, as Chandra mentioned, a lot of technology has already come to agriculture. On the other hand, there's a lot yet to come. That is, there was a study done a few years back that looked at 23 different industry verticals in terms of digital transformation. Agriculture was ranked last, 23rd, paired with hunting. So it's that bad. And the key bottleneck has been the cost of existing precision agriculture technologies, which has limited their adoption. For example, most of these farms don't have internet connectivity. If you don't have internet connectivity, how are you going to build these maps? How are you going to provide inputs to the farmers? We as technologists, as scientists, need to build techniques and we need to bring them to agriculture in an affordable way so that farmers can benefit. So this is a good time to tell us about your project, FarmBeats. How are you addressing the problems you just raised with FarmBeats? So the goal of FarmBeats is to significantly bring down the cost of these data-driven agriculture solutions, make it affordable for farmers worldwide. And some of the ways we are doing that, one is around connectivity. Most of these farms don't have internet connectivity. How will you get data from the middle of the farm? To solve that problem, we use a technology called the TV white spaces. The idea is to use unused TV channels to send and receive data. You know, when you browse through TV, on certain channels, all you see is white noise. We built a technology where you could take a Wi-Fi signal and put it in these noisy TV channels. And the interesting thing about agriculture is that TV towers are in cities. The farms are away from the cities. If you turn on a TV in the middle of a farm, most of the channels are just white noise. Even if 20 TV channels are available, we are talking of over half a gigabit per second of available capacity. At the same power level as Wi-Fi, UHF TV channels, your signals go four times farther. In VHF, they go 12 times farther, and that's in free space. Once you put it through trees, crops, canopies, your signals just keep going through. So this is one of the technologies we are bringing with FarmBeats. In addition to that, we are combining sensors with aerial 
imagery, say from drones or satellites, so that with very few sensors and using artificial intelligence and machine learning, you can start building these maps of the farm. And the third key innovation is this thing where rather than transmitting large amounts of data from the farm to the cloud, we are doing compute at the edge, at the farmer's house. Now, of course, there's a lot of research to be done in that space, and Chandra's team is leading some of that work. The key goal is, can you start building these kind of maps of the farm at a cost which makes it affordable for farmers worldwide? So Chandra, tell us about Smart Farm then, the idea of actually being able to process some of this massive data locally rather than uploading everything into the cloud. That's exactly right. In particular, we're studying the computer systems that need to run on farm to do some of this artificial intelligence and machine learning so that it can take data directly from the sensors that are there and then make decisions with AI and actuate and control on-farm operations. So you can use robotics, you can use automation to really refine how you treat your individual plants. It allows farmers to control the data that they get from their farm and by storing it and managing at the edge first before shipping it out to the cloud when and if you have an internet connection, they can control that sharing, who they're going to share with, who owns that data, and these edge systems that we design automatically do that for them. So it can anonymize data before moving it out so that they can maximize the benefit of operating locally, but also using cloud computing systems. Now, I imagine that um, farmers who have farms next door to each other can probably share information usefully. So disease outbreaks or weather, for example. How does a technology like yours help them to do that? Because that would be something very useful to them. That's exactly what we do. Because we can operate one of these, we call it a mini cloud. It's just a cloud shrunken down into a small, appliance. It's like, an, it's like a refrigerator that runs on farm. Because it can run on farm, it can run in anything bigger as well. So what we do is we develop community cloud co-ops where farmers share areas or computer systems across a county, for example. You want to move the data only as far as it takes to solve the problem. Where is this technology actually being deployed right now? It's very exciting because in California, there's all kinds of different crops and we get to test the different ways precision farming can be brought to bear on these different crops because it's very specialized to each crop. So we focus on the citrus industry and then around the Santa Barbara area on the wine industry and the almonds and the pistachio industry which is really really big. Ranveer, when, when you last spoke to The Economist in 2016, you were going to trial helium balloons as, as a low-cost uh, solution right. to drones. How did that go? Yeah, so that's coming along really well. So we've deployed these um, helium balloons in farms. That is, instead of drones, you could. it's much easier to set up a balloon at 150 to 200 feet. It's tethered to the ground. What we built is a weatherproof mount where you could keep your smartphone with your camera facing down. And this thing can stay up for four to seven days taking images of the farm. There's a farmer right here in Seattle, 25 miles east of here, and he uses it to monitor floods. That is, every morning when he comes to the farm, if he sees any amount of flood right now, he has to throw away all his crop because he doesn't know which crop was touched by the flood. With a balloon, because it can last four to seven days, he has visual proof to see which crops are actually touched by the flood. We are trying this technique in places like India and Africa as well, where labor is inexpensive, so somebody could just walk around with the balloon. We then apply computer vision algorithms to create these orthomosaics, these panoramic views of the entire farm. Chandra, can I ask you one final question, which is about the concerns and, and risks of this? Because farmers have in the past 
been sometimes concerned about technology because someone else owns that technology. Uh, genetically modified crops have caused problems in the past for the same reason. Why should this be any different? If, if you've got someone coming in, analyzing your data for you and then sending it back to you, they still sort of own that information on their servers, with their code. How do farmers sort of get on board with this? Well, there's two questions that you have there. The second one, which is, do farmers maintain control of their data? And in our world, it, they do. And I think in the future, that's how it's going to be. The systems can operate on their behalf. The other way that farmers can learn to trust these systems is for me and people like me in academia to be able to develop these real prototypes and demonstrate them on real farms and in experimental settings so that they can go and see for themselves and touch it and feel it and try it and gain trust that way. And then if those building blocks work, then companies and startups can take them and commercialize them. It has to be multidisciplinary. This is the only way we're going to really push precision agriculture to its limits and get it into farmers' hands soon. Chandra and Ranveer, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Plenty of food for thought there. Thank you to the American Association for the Advancement of Science and everyone who came to listen to us live at the meeting. Jeff and I will bring you more stories from Seattle in this week's issue of The Economist, online and on newsstands. If you're not already a subscriber, go to economist.com slash radio offer to be able to read all of that. And do keep tuning into Babbage in the coming weeks to hear more from the people we met and talked to at AAAS 2020. I'm Alok Jha, and in Seattle, this is The Economist. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.